welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. The Republican majority of the House Intelligence Committee voted yesterday to seek release of a Republican memo based on classified information. The memo has passed from the House Committee to President Trump for a required review for national security. Associate Attorney General Stephen Boyd warned last week that it would be, quote, extraordinarily reckless to release the memo. According to Bloomberg News, President Trump erupted in anger while traveling to Davos on Air Force One last week when he learned about Boyd's warning. Also on Monday, FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, who has been the subject of blistering criticism from Trump, stepped down and will be on leave until he retires sometime in the spring. Joining me is Jimmy Garule, professor at Notre Dame University Law School. Jimmy, what do we know about the memo and why there's such a push to release it? Well, unfortunately, we don't know a lot because, uh, first of all, the, the memo is based on, on classified information, and even members of the House Intelligence Committee, at least on the Democratic side, have been prohibited, uh, prevented from seeing the underlying classified information upon which this four-page memo is based. Further, uh, the memo has not been shared on the Senate side with the Senate Intelligence Committee, with the chairman and vice chairman. Of, of that committee either. And so we're left to kind of speculate, you know, what what's leaked or, or at least how the memo has been described. Does it suggest that there may have been some abuse of power with by the Department of Justice and the FBI with respect to getting a FISA warrant? against a uh, former policy advisor, Carter Page, who worked on the uh, the Trump presidential campaign. Now, we should mention that FISA warrants, the information is presented to a judge, and the judges are pretty pretty good to figure out what's necessary, especially when you're looking for surveillance. Um, and apparently, the, the ranking Democrat on the panel, Adam Schiff, has said that the Republicans refused a request from the FBI director to brief the panel about the release of the document. Just how was the memo declassified? It's based on classified information. Well, it hasn't been declassified. That's the problem. It's now been submitted to the uh, to the White House, to the president, to President Trump. And, of course, the president has the power. He has the authority to classify material if he believes that it, it, it it's its disclosure could threaten national security. At the same time, he has the authority to declassify information, again, if he concludes that declassification would not threaten national security interests. So that's where the the, the infamous memo presently sits. It's, it's in the possession of the White House awaiting President Trump to make a decision on whether the information should be, declass- should be declassified and the memo itself should be released to the public. Um, so that's the uh, the precarious situation that uh, that this memo currently finds, uh, you know, the current situation involving the memo. Have you heard of a situation like this before? Uh, uh, totally unprecedented. Absolutely unprecedented. You know, the justification for this, at least on the on the Republican side uh, in the House, has been, well, we're simply fulfilling our oversight responsibilities with respect to overseeing the FBI and DOJ. But this type of oversight, which involves a particular action, in this case, the, 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 the application for a FISA warrant against a specific individual, Carter Page, 
with respect to a specific uh, investigation, the, the Russia investigation, and the the committee, the House Intelligence Committee, releasing information on that is unprecedented. You know, oversight usually involves, uh, oh, maybe if there's some concern about a statute or how DOJ or the FBI is interpreting a particular statute and the statute needs to be amended, or if there's some, you know, broader uh, concerns, that then certainly the House would engage in oversight on a broader, uh, in a more global scale. But, but, but to focus on a specific case and specific individual in a case is, is absolutely unprecedented. And furthermore, or to, to disclose uh, the existence of a FISA warrant, which, as you know, is, is, is secreted in nature. In fact, uh, it's against the law for a recipient of, of a FISA warrant to disclose uh, to the target that he or she is, is under surveillance. Uh, uh, that would be a violation of the law. And here we have these House members that are that are disclosing this uh, type of, uh, of very sensitive uh, information. Now, uh, President Trump met with Attorney General Sessions and the FBI director on Monday to discuss text messages between the two FBI agents that we've heard about. White House Chief of Staff John Kelly called Sessions directly to complain about uh, the letter from Stephen Boyd, which uh, warned about extraordinarily reckless behavior right. to release the memo. And um, he also spoke to others. Is this close, is this interference with the FBI and the Justice Department unusual, or does it happen with a lot of presidents? No, I, th- I think it is unusual. I think one of the hallmarks of, of American democracy is that not only do we have an independent judiciary, but we have an independent Department of Justice and, and, and the FBI. And what that independence means is that investigations and prosecutions should be conducted on the facts, on the merits, not, not for political reasons. And, and who to prosecute or who to investigate or who not to investigate shouldn't be influenced by political partisan considerations. And that's clearly what we've seen with the Trump administration with respect to the the Russia investigation. You know, first the president has decided who he wants to head up the investigation uh, by firing uh, former FBI director Comey. He doesn't. He didn't want him to to head up the investigation. And now he's hand picked his his successor. And, I'm afraid we'll uh, and, have to leave it there. But we'll have, I'm sure, a lot more to talk about when this uh, when more of this uh, evolves. That's Jimmy Garule. He's a professor at Notre Dame University Law School. You've heard all the warnings about Bitcoin. Here's Vanguard Group founder Jack Bogle. It's a speculation, and I'd avoid it like the plague. So it was only a matter of time until Bitcoin made its way into a federal court case. Prosecutors have charged Brooklyn businessman Maxim Zaslavsky in what's believed to be the first criminal case focusing on an initial coin offering. But it's still unclear if the government has the authority to regulate cyber currency offerings. Here to help me sort it out is Peter Henning, a professor at Wayne State University Law School and a former SEC and Justice Department lawyer. Peter, what's the case against Zaslavsky? 
Well, this is, it's not Bitcoin, but another, a different thing that's called an initial coin offering. And in fact, the SEC filed a case just today, uh, or just became publicized today, uh, to try to shut down another coin offering. This is where a company issues these tokens, and they'll give them a label that makes it sound like Bitcoin, and they have a value that can be redeemed at the company. And so... It bears at least some similarity to Bitcoin, but it's coming from a company rather than Bitcoin, which is not affiliated with any particular issuer and is trying to become a new type of currency, much like you know the dollar or the euro. So what's the fundamental issue that the judge has to decide before the case can move forward? Well, the key question is whether these initial coin offerings are securities. Uh, in order for the SEC to even have jurisdiction to pursue a claim, there has to be a determination that it's a security, and that's defined in the federal securities laws and very broad definitions. And what the SEC is probably going to argue, and I expect they'll argue, is that these uh, coin offerings are really what are called investment contracts. In other words, people put money in expecting that the coins will increase in value, and therefore it's like an investment, say, in a stock or a bond. But if a judge says it's not a security, then it's out uh, as far as the SEC is concerned. Tell us about the Supreme Court case from 1946 involving Orange Grove contracts that may come into play. Well, that's the uh, SEC versus Howey uh, is the case in which the company owned uh, orange groves in Florida and sold to uh, investors, mainly tourists, who were coming to Florida saying, here's your little slice of the sunshine state and um, give us your money. We will, and if you want, also you can have a service contract where we will harvest the oranges for you and give you a cut of the profits. Now, oranges don't sound like a security, but under this label investment contract, probably the broadest one in the definition of a security, that uh, the Supreme Court said that is an investment contract because you're depending on other people to make money off of your investment, and therefore it's subject to SEC rules. Probably the most important rule is if it's a security, you have to register it with the commission and include financial statements and things like that, a uh, very onerous process. So it extended the jurisdiction of the SEC in the Howey case. So in your view, are these securities? Uh, well, <laughs> very good question. Um, I, I hate to substitute my judgment for that of a judge, but uh, it, they sure sound like securities where they're being, it's a company that's issuing them and they're saying these are going to increase in value or allow you to buy more and more services. And they are issued as a way to help fund the company. And that sounds an awful lot like a security. Um, now, it, different Coin offerings are going to have different uh, variations, but I, I, the starting point, and the SEC is taking the position, uh, Chairman Clayton has said, these sure look like securities, and we're going to start policing this area of the market. So it's not Bitcoin, but it's things that are masquerading or sounding like cryptocurrencies along the lines of Bitcoin. So there was an, there's another case in Brooklyn Federal Court 
where a judge is being asked to rule on how cryptocurrencies and ICOs should be treated under U.S. laws. Tell us a little bit about that case. Well, one of the issues there is that it was, if, the, if it's the one uh, that you're mentioning that I'm thinking of, is the it Dominic involves Liquor. Canadian. Yes, the Canadian uh, company. And there is also an issue under uh, federal securities laws is, does it reach transactions outside the United States? Now, if these uh, coin offerings are offered to or purchased by American investors, then the SEC can usually step in. But this is where things get nebulous. Is it a security? Where is it being offered? And often on these websites, they say, no U.S. citizens can buy, so please, U.S. citizens, don't do it. But then they don't check anymore to make sure American citizens aren't doing it. So that could give the SEC uh, jurisdiction over it. Notice this is all getting fought out before we determine whether, in fact, there was any fraud. So <laughs> it's these preliminary rounds that are really going to be the key. So courts in other jurisdictions aren't required to follow what a Brooklyn federal judge decides, but might they look at it? I suspect they would. The federal district courts in Brooklyn and Manhattan are are the leading courts for securities cases, and um, this is the SEC coming in there, and if the Justice Department gets involved in any criminal cases, I, I expect that we will see a fairly uniform approach, at least to these initial coin offerings, but there's always that risk that you could have a judge in one jurisdiction saying one thing, judge in another saying something completely different, and then you got to try to figure out a way to reconcile it. Ultimately, this may be up to Congress to reconcile. That, that might be the better body, assuming they could ever pass a law. Confusion in the law, Peter, really. Uh, <laughs> what a shock, isn't it? <laughs> That's what lawyers are for, to, to, to figure out which side. Thanks so much for that, Peter. That's Peter Hanning, a professor at Wayne State University Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.